Well, what is up, New Journey and friends? Grab those Bibles, those devices. Let's open them up to Judges chapter 5. Uh, what an opportunity we have today. Uh, we get to do the thing we love the most, which is to worship and to worship King Jesus. And we get to do that uh, with people we love to do it with. Uh, what an opportunity. Uh, for me, it also is a difficult day. Today has opportunity, but it also has a lot of difficulties first. I haven't done this in a month now, and I'm not sure I remember how. Uh, hopefully, I'll stumble my way through it. Secondly, I have to follow in the footsteps of those who have so adequately blessed you by opening the scriptures and pointing you to Christ over the last month. Uh, they did a fantastic job. I'm grateful for them. And third, uh, our text today presents some difficulties. Uh, Judges chapter 5 is a song. Uh, it's a long song, and uh, turning a song into a sermon is really never a very easy task. Uh, so today, uh, we're going to uh, look at the content of the victory song of Israel in the aftermath of the killing of the feared general Sisera. There were three main actors in Judges chapter 4 that brought that about, a prophetess uh, with a prophetic vision named Deborah. Uh, there was a, uh, a soldier, uh, a leader in battle. His name was Barak. And thirdly, uh, there was a woman named Jael who killed the general Sisera by hammering a tent, pe tent peg into his skull. Uh, but before we dive too deeply into the specifics of the lyrics, uh, I do want to take just a few moments, and we're going to start our notes before we read the text today. I want to take just a few moments and really look at and consider uh, the unique role of singing in Christian worship, really just overall in the big picture. I also want to look at uh, the fact that Christians sing and compare that to all the other world religions. And I also want to point out that while the world of Judges chapter 5 feels very far, far away from where we live today, uh, I want us to discover that there are many parallels between what uh, the people of Israel do in Judges chapter 5 in response to God's salvation and what we hopefully uh, do and have already done well today as we respond to God's salvation. So let's just start with our notes and start with really talking about singing and the Savior. Singing and the Savior. Um, music is an interesting medium. It uh, really uh, allows itself, uh, because by nature of, it, uh, of itself as a medium, it allows itself to cover a range of emotions. Whatever emotion, whatever feeling you have on a particular given day, there is probably a song that captures it, right? Uh, there is... Uh, slow and sad music, not my favorite genre, right? If you're ever riding in the road, down the road with me and a slow song comes on, I'm probably going to change the channel. I don't want to listen to music that makes me want to go home and write a letter to everyone I ever offended. You know what I mean? Like, that's just not me. Music can also be slow and smooth, maybe even seductive, like jazz or Marvin Gaye or one of my favorites, Al Green, right? Can I get an amen? Y'all acting like y'all don't listen to Marvin Gaye, all right? All right, or music can also be aggressive and angry, right? Cue the kill the puppies music, right? That death metal stuff where they just scream into the microphone. Uh, the most popular musical genre uh, by far, and there's a reason why it's called pop music, is uh, music that is upbeat and happy. Upbeat and happy. They call it positive, encouraging K-love rather than K-wrath for a reason, right? There's a purpose behind that. Uh, well, uh, a particular sort of event and mood would be a celebration, right? Celebrations. That's, that, you have a mood, right? You're, there's, a, there's a moment there, and it's like, man, we're upbeat, we're happy. We just won something. We did something big. Celebrations always have music in the background, don't they? 
Uh, we do the Cupid shuffle and the electric slide at wedding receptions, not at funerals. Right? Well, I guess it depends on how you felt about the deceased, right? But we do, we do those for a reason. We're celebrating something, right? Well, this is the mood in Israel. Uh, they're celebrating. They have won a stupendous, utterly unthinkable victory over a neighboring king and his ruthless, previously unbeatable general Sisera. This has all come through the prophetic promise of a woman named Deborah, a soldier named Barak, and the shrewdness and the bravery of a woman named Jael and her hammer and her spike. And so the most natural thing in the world as we move from Judges 4 and into Judges 5 would be to get a DJ, to drop a beat, right, and to sing and dance on the graves of our defeated enemies. And yet... While singing in response to victory is the most natural thing in the world, somehow this song in Judges, it feels out of place. It's surprising and it's shocking. And it actually, if we stop and think about it, feels a little bit inappropriate. A little bit inappropriate. Well, that is something that we have in common with the people of Judges chapter 5 because as Christians, we sing of a victory that is actually shocking if we would ever just stop and think about it. Judges is a bloody book, man. Battles everywhere. Death inflicted everywhere you look. There is a lot of glory for God in the book, but the glory comes through events that are very gory. And yet at the cross, we find the very same thing. Right? We sanitize the cross. We've made it clean and neat and palatable. We've made it marketable as Christians, but the cross was anything but those things. It was gory. Blood spilled, flesh stripped, torture, excruciating pain inflicted. Organs are run through with spears and those who are dying are mocked by their killers. It was gory. And yet in it was God's glory. God gets the glory at the cross, but I would call it a gory glory. The cross is ugly, it's uncomfortable, and yet most of our songs as Christians are about what? The cross and Christ who hung there. It's an object of torture and death. It's the electric chair of its day, and yet Christians for thousands of years have got crunk to and crunk out songs about it. I googled how many songs are there about the cross? And Pastor Professor Google couldn't come up with an answer. Right? I guess too many to count is the answer. When's the last time, now listen to the whole thing, when's the last time you heard a song about an instrument of death and pain, like say a machine gun, right? And you've heard one of those songs before if you listen to gangster rap, all right, guilty, all right? When's the last time you heard a song about an instrument of death that was meant to inspire awe and worship at the one who was killed by the instrument of death, right? This is so unique to Christians, but we sing about the cross as Christians and it's such a weird thing, but we need to sing about the cross because Christian singing of our victory is not just shocking, but it's also a very stirring thing. You see, if we don't sing about the cross of Christ, then here's what we'll do. We'll turn Jesus into a nice guy. 
And we'll forget the skyscraping cost of our redemption that Jesus paid on the cross. If we sing just about Jesus, but really never about his cross, then we run the risk of losing sight of the cost that he paid to make us his own, to forgive us of our sins, to bring joy and freedom rushing into our lives, to grant us peace and eternal life with God. Those things came at a cost. They weren't free. They're free to us, but they were anything but free to Him. Jesus without the cross is like a pit bull with no teeth. A tiger with no stripes. Jesus without the cross, it fundamentally changes everything about who He is. But not only who He is, but who we are. And where and upon whom our hope and eternity lies. A crossless Christ, as I would call him, is yawning. <laughs> Forgettable, boring, worthy to note, but not worthy to worship. He's an example to follow, but he is not worthy to be the one if he did not hang on the cross. He is not worthy to be the one who is exalted and before whom we fall down and cry out, worthy is the one who was slain because he has overcome. <laughs> A crossless Christ is yawning. But you know what? A Christless cross is no better. <laughs> what I mean by that is this. If we talk about the cross and we sing about the cross and never Christ, then what we do is we turn the cross into a wooden work of man that we worship. And we are no better than the jungle dwellers of Amazonia who worship the works of their own hands. We talk about the cross Sing about the cross and never Christ, then we miss the point because the cross itself doesn't matter as much as who hung on it and what he did as he hung there. He is God the Son, second person of the Trinity in human flesh, not dying just a physical death, but enduring the wrath of God for all who would come to him. The cross is not an object to deify. It is not an object to worship, but it is worth remembering and singing about again because of who hung there and what happened there. And we sing because songs stick with us, right? Songs stick with us. If I said, hey, can anybody quote to me Zephaniah 317 that we just had on the screen? Yeah. But if I, said, if I said this, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Most of you can fill in the rest of the words because you know the song Amazing Grace. There's a reason why we sing the cleanup song with our kids because songs are memorable. Lyrics stick with us. We need to sing about the cross because singing of the cross is one of the best ways to remind us of it and to stir up within our hearts affections for Christ anew, not just on Sunday, but every day. Martin Luther uh, was pressed once about why he preached to his congregation so often about Jesus Christ and his cross. Why do you keep talking about that every single week? And he simply responded, because you so often forget it. <laughs> because we so often forget it. That's why we need to sing of it. We need to sing of the cross, even if it's not the, the sort of thing. And I don't think we do this as Christians. We don't think about this. We need to sing of the cross, even though it's not normally the kind of thing that we would think to make melody and music over. <laughs> Death on a cross, right? Christian singing stirs us up though. And singing in worship is actually a very unique activity to Christians in the world's religious landscape. I think it is solidifying. It draws us together. 
It's one of the things that makes us distinct and unique among other world religions because it is a solitary activity in the religious landscape. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but no other religion sings. Some hum, some chant, but no other religion sings. Actually, many religions outside of Christianity not only refuse to sing, but outright reject the practice altogether as being anything spiritual. Now, it seems odd, doesn't it? It's hard for us to get our minds around the idea that someone wouldn't sing in a worship service. It seems odd to us, but when you think about it, their lack of enjoying music and the excitement of singing in their worship makes sense because they have nothing to sing about. <laughs> they have nothing to sing about. Their God is not a God they enjoy. He's a God they fear. And they're trying somehow to make their way up to Him. Our God is a God who has come down and who sings over us and says, I have made you mine. We sing because we have something to sing about. And the other world religions can't join in that with us because they don't have anything to sing about. The Bible's full of singing. It's full of songs. There's an entire book that is dedicated to nothing but songs. And the New Testament is filled with commands. We read one today in Colossians 3.16 for the church to not neglect singing when we gather together. Even the existence of uh, Christian contemporary music on the radio is a fascinating phenomenon. Right? Travel the world. And you know what you won't find? You'll find radio stations uh, uh, dedicated to lectures and talks, maybe even like sermon type things from some other religion. You don't find radio stations dedicated to nothing but music that is uh, religious in its nature. This is a fascinating phenomenon. Now we can all admit this, that Christian contemporary music has horrible pitfalls. Right? We can all admit that. It has its shortcomings. But the fact that it exists, the fact that there are human beings out there who never tire of looking for ways to express their faith and their convictions about Jesus through song is an absolutely unique thing in the world religious landscape. John Piper says this about Christians and singing. He says, I really don't have a lot of patience, frankly, with Christians who want to put a lid on music and singing or put it back five centuries or limit it to one kind of instrument or take away all instrumental music and just let it be voice. I think all of that is hopelessly defeatist because we humans have explosive souls and we have explosive souls because uh, it's because our God is explosively beautiful and great and glorious and he is going to call out from us. He is the one drawing out from us music of every kind and we might as well just let it out. <laughs> but we need to also bring it into its deep and powerful significance with truth. Right? We need to marry that with truth. Singing may be unique to Christians when compared to other world religions, but have, have you thought about this? That, that human beings have songs about anything and everything. We are always ready to write and sing a song about any activity that we enjoy. Why? Why would we exclude the one who is really only worthy to be sung about from that practice? Right? The fact that Christianity is a singing religion, it bears witness not only to the way we're wired as human beings, but to the kind of God that we have, namely a God who is one day, according to Zephaniah 3.17, going to sing over us. Our God is a singing God, and made in His image, He made us to be singing people. 
That verse just blows my mind that one day he is going to lead a choir and celebrate the fact that we are his. And then when you pair that with what David read in Revelation chapter 5, you read that we're going to join in that song and rejoice and sing that he is ours. Man, Christians sing about an unusual event. The cross, right? An event that feels uncomfortable, borderline inappropriate to sing about because of the death and gore which came to pass in it. Yet it makes all the sense in the world because in that event, as gory as it was, was the glory of God saving man from his enemies. Right? And so this is another place where we have this parallel with them in Judges chapter 5. We sing a song of salvation that came through a spike. (laughs) Through a spike. Through the death of one man in Judges, God's people are saved. The cruel general Sisera, he flees the battle. He tries to live and fight another day. He is persuaded by the wife of an ally to come into her tent. She crushes his, uh, she crushes his skull by hammering a spike into it. God's people in Judges chapter 4 are saved by a, or excuse me, saved through a woman hammering a spike. Oh, there's so much going on here. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God tells Satan in the immediate aftermath after Adam and Eve sinned, God comes and he tells Satan that his demise and his downfall would come through one born of a woman who would crush the head of Satan. Jael is not the fulfillment of that promise Jesus is, but she is a foreshadowing and a foretaste of it because Jesus was born of a virgin, meaning he had no earthly dad. He was born of a woman, but not of a man. Right? He's the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. And just as the death of one through a spike brought victory and peace to God's people and judges, death through one who was nailed with spikes has brought victory and peace to God's people in Jesus. In both Judges and Jesus, we see singing about God's salvation through the hammering of a blood-stained, jagged piece of metal. Man. Now, we're going to turn our attention now to the specifics of Judges 5. I just wanted to take a few minutes and talk about singing and its, and its role. We ought to sing in response to God's salvation. Now, let's look at the specifics of Judges chapter 5. Uh, the first three verses, we'll read those momentarily. They're going to be an epilogue, an introduction to the song. It's just going to introduce you to who wrote the song, who's singing the song, and what the song is about. Uh, many of you uh, did not grow up like I did, like with good, like old school 80s rap. But back in those days, it was not strange for rappers to collaborate together. And so when you came on the mic, you had to introduce everybody to who you were and you had to talk about what your contribution to the song would be. Hence, like if if this was happening today, I would say something like, my name is Dr. K and I came here to say. Obviously, I'm not a rapper because that wasn't in good rhythmic timing, but you get the point, right? This is what's happening in these verses. Uh, The writers, the original performers were Deborah and Barak and they were there to say, what Israel did, and they were there to say what God did in delivering them from the grip of their oppressors. And then the song is going to really start in verse 4. I see the song is breaking down into three verses or or three major sections. And and I'm going to go ahead and read the first section and then I'll stop in verses 4 through 11, a section that I would call the defender and the defenseless. So join me. Let's read Judges chapter 5. We'll read the first 11 verses and then we'll kind of come, we'll make some observations, come back and kind of continue in that way. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. 
I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. This is the song. It's about that day when the leaders stepped up and the people sort of got in line and God showed up and fought against the kings of the earth. That's what the song is about. Verse four, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anak, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When you gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of, triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. So, Let's look at this, this section here, this verse that I'm calling the defender and the defenseless. Deborah expounds in this section upon the powerlessness and the defenseless of Israel uh, while she and Shamgar uh, were judges and compares and juxtaposes that period or that sort of defenselessness and powerlessness to the power of God who she extols, I believe, as the defender of his defenseless people. In verse four, we see God marching out to war. The creation quakes in fear and awe at God as he passes by. The clouds drip with rain at the sight and sound of God marching to war. And you could just insert your little joke about, you know, somebody maybe peeing in their pants a little bit when they get scared right here. That's not actually what uh, she's talking about. She's talking about a massive flash flood thunderstorm that was sent. This is how the victory of Judges 4 comes about. Sisera, the general, and Barak, Israel's champion, they square off in a valley. Barak is at one end, he is on the high ground and Sisera is on the other end and there's a stream in between them and Sisera has his chariots and his horses but if the stream in the middle of the valley floods, right, the ground turns to mud, it turns to water, having the high ground would be advantageous and the chariots would be rendered useless and this is exactly what happens in Judges chapter four. God made it rain, <laughs> Not figuratively, but literally. And when he made it rain, Israel ended the reign of King Jabin and Sisera, his general. God is the powerful defender of his people against their enemies because their enemies are his enemies too. And Deborah does something interesting in the text. She calls him the God of Sinai. And she does that for a reason. Mount Sinai is where God met with Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments and etc. Deborah's point in calling him the God of Sinai is to say that the God of Sinai is the same God who fought for Israel against Sisera. In other words, God didn't stay at Mount Sinai. He has come to Canaan with his people. And if you want to mess with them, you've got to deal with him too. Right? Compare what Deborah says about God and his power to how she describes Israel. Things were so bad, so bad. She talks about how in those days you couldn't drive or take a stroll down the road, road without fear of getting shot 
or jumped or mugged, right? That's the, I mean, Israel is the hood and nobody is up to any good, right? That's where they are. She talks about how there's no warriors in Israel. She says, no shield is found among 40,000. There's no warriors, nobody to step up and say, this isn't right. <clears throat> nobody comes to their rescue. They had chosen for themselves new gods, but these new gods are impotent and of no use when Sisera came to town, which is why she references war in the city gates. There's all this arguing in the city gates, which is where people would gather to settle issues and make community decisions. Deborah's prophetic vision, she calls herself, she arose as a mother in Israel. She is a, she's a prophetess and it's her prophetic vision that begins to seek to turn the people back to Yahweh and starts the unfolding of the events that leads to the overthrow of Sisera. Deborah then grieves. She grieves for the men who were lost in battle. Right? I don't know if you saw this. She grieves for the men who were lost in battle and she grieves for them because they fought without God and without God to fight for them. These other gods that Israel had chosen, they did nothing. And because Israel trusted in them, they were defenseless against the attack of the evil one. Now, human beings are always in this position. We are always defenseless against the evil one if we don't have a defender. Uh, human beings are referred to often by the Bible as sheep. Uh, and this is because sheep have no natural defense against their predators. Uh, they have no sharp teeth or claws. Think about a sheep, a lamb. No sharp teeth or claws. They're not lightning fast or agile, right? They are uh, not smart or clever and they can't and they don't hide very well, right? So they're just basically like prey, like the easy prey. They are dumb and defenseless and it's not hard to figure out why the Bible calls us sheep. Sheep need a defender. Sheep need a defender if they're to be kept safe, right? And their shepherd is the one who plays that role. And the scriptures don't just call us sheep, but Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 14, calls himself our good shepherd. He is our shepherd, whoever lives to defend us if we belong to him. If not, good luck, because you're a sitting duck, sitting sheep. You live in the crosshairs of Satan without Christ to shield you from his attack and arrows. Listen to how the apostle Paul describes those without Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter two, verses 12 and 13. He says, remember, talking to the Ephesians, remember back in the day before you were a Christian, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. What's the result of all that? You had no hope and with, uh, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been brought into the fold. You now have a shepherd to defend you. So you have hope. Why do you have hope? Because you're no longer without God, but you are with Christ, right? That's his point. Israel had no hope, no hope apart from God. And on this side of the New Testament, we don't have any hope if we don't have Jesus Christ. Without him, we are defenseless and we are doomed to be subjugated to serve our sin and to serve Satan, but Jesus Christ. See, the Bible's full of, full of all these big butts that I love, right? But Jesus Christ, he is mighty in power and he is the defender of the defenseless. We are the defenseless. He is our defender. He is our shepherd and we are his sheep. In verses 10 and 11, we see Deborah unfolding poetically uh, kind of what did it look like when Israel finally sort of came to their senses. They tried everything else and at the end of themselves, they realized that God Christ was all that they needed. 
And the focus of the very next section, which is going to be pretty lengthy, it begins to move on to uh, the confidence, the conviction, the shot of courage that Israel gets when they come to this realization that if they will just simply turn back to God, He is with them and will fight for them rather than against them. So let's read verses 12 through 23, or 27 together. Awake, awake, Deborah, Awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. Do you see that? The courage is there. They're marching out to war. God is with them and they know they can do this. From Ephraim, their route, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Makir, marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley. They rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead, they stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulon is a people who risk their lives to death. Naphtali too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanak by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs. So the torrent here, the the creek overflows. And then in the mud you hear the horse's hoofs beat loudly. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Meros, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He, Sisera, asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. Right? So in this section, I would label this section the warrior and the worthless. God comes and fights for his people. In verses 12 through 13, Deborah recounts how she and Barak together began to stir the people up uh, with with the promises of God as the people remembered who their God is, that he is the one who in the past has toppled empires and shattered evil dictators on their behalf. Their knees begin to firm firm up. Their their warrior spirit begins to revive and fortify in this eternal promise of God to fight for them and with them. Sadly, sadly, the text makes clear not everybody felt that way. Uh, Verses 14 and 15a sort of start this list of who all was there at at the battle fighting with God as he fought for Israel. But then we get to verse 15b down through verse 17 and we find this list of who was notably absent at the battle because they could not be bothered due to apathy and busyness 
and business interest. The people of Reuben are mentioned. Uh, they are shepherds and they were too worried about what might happen to their sheep to join the fight. Dan and Asher were seafaring merchants and they had too much work to do, loading and unloading their ships to become involved. And the reason why they were, they were hesitant to become involved is very clear historically that these tribes were less affected by the rule of Sisera and Jabin. Uh, things were okay for them. I, I don't know if things were good. Maybe they weren't perfect, but things were okay for them. There was money in their bank account. Their stomachs were full. They were doing okay under the rule of Sisera. And while they would love to see him overthrown, they weren't going to risk stepping in, fighting against him, and in a Sisera run, facing his punishment. Right? They were going to sort of say, hey, we were good either way. Y'all do the fighting, and ever how it works out is cool with us. Now, a phrase commonly used these days to describe a call to action in writing injustices is you want to be on the right side of history. No. You want to be on the righteous side of the one who is writing his story of redemption. <laughs> right? That's the point. The soul of Israel is at stake and Reuben and Dan and Asher are not on the righteous side of God's story here. They did nothing, nothing to assist or to help in Israel's fight for freedom. And they are skewered and slammed by Deborah's lyrics. The soul of Israel, the freedom of the people is at stake. And they sat idly, idly by and counted their money. The church and individual Christians... We have a, a call to battle, to join the battle for people's souls, for the glory of God, and yes, even the righting of injustices and transgressions around the world. Just like Dan and Asher and Reuben, we may be personally less affected in a negative way by the rule of those who may uh, be seeking to oppress some other group, but we cannot think that just because it doesn't affect me personally in a harsh way that it's not worth my time or risking my reputation or maybe being called woke by my borderline racist family and friends. If it affects one Christian, it affects all Christians because we are in a family together the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives within us and it lives within all people who call him Savior and Lord regardless of color or ethnicity or language or culture. If it affects one member of the family, it affects every member of the family. If you, if you threaten the well-being of one member of the family, you threaten the well-being of all members of the family. As Martin Luther King Jr. once said, an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Wake up. That's what Deborah says to Israel. Did you catch it? Wake up. And I join her. Now you hear me. I don't care if you get, quote, woke up. Could care less about that. But I do believe it's time for the church at large to wake up and see that the glory of God is at stake. We need to see that our apathy and in our, act, in, in, in our inactivity, here's what we do. We send a very clear message as quote-unquote white Christians to our non-white brothers and sisters in Christ and we send a very confusing message to the rest of the world that is lost, that sees nothing of the glory and compassion and concern of God in our inaction and in our silence. Now, I think, the, but here's the deal. 
Here's why I bring this up, because I think this text so clearly helps us sort of get our hearts around something that we don't know how to always give voice to. The attitude of Reuben captures where many white Christians find themselves. Twice it's mentioned that Reuben greatly searched many things in his heart. Reuben was torn. He knew he needed to get in there and get involved, but he wasn't sure what to do. Risk. Risk had him hesitant, but friends, we need to say this. Man, risk is right when it's for the glory of Christ. And I hear this all the time, and I want to be honest with you. I'm there with you. I am there with you. Many want to do something. We want to help. We're just not sure what to do. And we know this. We can't get behind everything that's being said and thought for by non-whites. We can't do that. We can't. Every single thing that's thrown out there is not of God. So we can't get behind those things. So we're conflicted in our hearts, just like Reuben was. And to feel that way is natural. In many ways, it's okay. But we do need to note that in the end, Reuben and Dan and Asher are condemned for their inactivity. And not being sure what to do cannot be a lifelong excuse to do nothing. Now, I think there's another place where we fear taking a risk. Short-term missions. The top three reasons people don't do short-term missions, I would say in order are, I can't afford it, 99% of the time, not true. I'm too busy at work and can't get the time off, 99% of the time, not true. Number three, I'm afraid for my physical safety. Okay, now we're being honest. Who's that sound like? I can't afford it. Man, I can't really get the time off of work. I fear for my physical safety. Who's that sound like? Dan, Asher, and Reuben. In Judges chapter 5, eternity is at stake. There's a battle for the souls of men and women and boys and girls, and we are too busy with our business to be bothered. Friends, we'll either be warriors for Christ or we'll be worthless for Christ. Not worthless too. Not worthless too. He prizes and values us highly. But while we can be worthwhile to him, we certainly can be worthless for him. Yeah, there's a risk involved. Say, <laughs> like, Kevin, that's risky, man. What you're talking about, I mean, that kind of sounds like radical Christianity. Yeah, there's a risk involved. <laughs> Deborah notes that Zebulon and Naphtali, they risked their lives in the battle with Sisera. And we struggle with this, man, because we are a risk-averse culture. And, if it, and, and I, I, I want to say this as loudly as I can say it. Friends, as a follower of Jesus Christ, our primary responsibility is not to keep people alive, but to get ready to die by sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, hoping that they will turn from their sin and to the Savior. So are you going to be a warrior or be worthless? I hope you get in the fight because risk is right when it's for the glory of Christ. As Deborah ends this section, we are reminded that not only did some of the clans of Israel fight, but so did the cosmos and the lightning and the thunder, which caused the rainstorm and caused Sisera's horses to be useless in the mud. But really what's most important in the text here as we start to move towards the end is that Yes, Israel joined in the fight, but God was the ultimate warrior. 
This is what makes Dan and Asher and Reuben's inactivity so silly. The victory was already won because God was there fighting for His people. Right? Well, friends, Christ is our warrior who fights for the worthless. He wins the war with a shocking sudden blow. He stands in victory over the top of his enemies who have been defeated by his death. Now, I want to say this. Friends, the truth is this. We can't fix ourselves, much less the world. And we can't save ourselves, much less the world. But Jesus Christ can. And Jesus Christ does. And Jesus Christ will. The deciding battle for the war of the souls of men, the fate of the cosmos, fought at the cross. And again, we're so familiar with the story, we, just, we don't let this wash over us. At the cross, things didn't look so good. Things looked bleak. And then Jesus came out of the grave, triumphing over his enemies. And he is the warrior, Jesus is, who wins the war with Satan for the, for the fate of those who are worthless to God in their sin, people like you and me, but people whom he still loves and favors and pursues anyway because he's good even though we are not. Jesus' victory came in a shocking turn of events, didn't it? Just like the downfall of Sisera did. The events of Sisera's ultimate downfall unfold in a way that Sisera must think are working to his advantage. We see these in verses 25 through 27. Sisera asked for a place to hide and Jael gives him her personal tent. He asked for some water to drink and she brought him milk. The text doesn't say he asked for anything to eat, but she lays a spread before him. There's considerable scholarly support for the belief that between her feet, the phrase that is repeated in verse 27, is a euphemism which implies that Sisera was between her knees um, with her on top of him. If you can catch my drift, this is where she was when she drove the tent spike through his temple. And it would make sense uh, to get a grizzled, war-experienced general to let down his guard in the aftermath of a battle would be very difficult. Her offering herself in that way to him would certainly do the trick. But the point is, in the run-up to his demise, in Sisera's mind, everything looked like it was going to work out, didn't it? And then, boom, out of nowhere, his skull is crushed. Well, Satan and Sisera share this in common. Everything looked like it was going really well for Satan. The cross worked. The cross worked. Jesus is dead. God's plan of redemption over with. And then suddenly out of nowhere, Jesus walks out of the grave and Satan's head is crushed. Satan was done. And so was the fear of death that he uses to hold mankind under his thumb. Uh, I think between his feet could also have a second meaning, and I think it's actually both, that Jael in the aftermath stood up and she stood over Sisera. It's the posture of a champion. I think of those pictures of Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier on the ground. It's the posture of someone who has defeated someone and they now stand in a posture of victory, lording it over them. Satan's crushed skull lies between the feet of Jesus. He stands over him and lords it over Satan in victory. And I believe this. I believe this all happened right outside the empty tomb. And if there was a painting, I believe somewhere in the background we would see the cross. <laughs> Man, he is the warrior who wins the war with Satan for the fate of those that he favors and pursues. But as we close out, and I'll be brief here, 
Jesus is not just the defender of the defenseless and the warrior for the worthless, but he is also the punisher of the perishing. So let's read the last three verses here. Out of the window, she, the she here is uh, Sisera's mother. Out of the window, she peered. The mother of Sisera walked, uh, wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your, so we transition now back to just Deborah speaking to close out the song. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might and the land had rest for 40 years. Now this section makes no bones about it. Cicero, Cicero was an evil, vile, wicked man. What came to him was just to paint that picture Deborah imagines Sisera's mom uh, watching and waiting for her son to come home. He, he's, not, he's not here when he normally would have been back by now. He should have been here by now. And she's wondering what has happened to him. Sisera's wretchedness is seen in how the young servant girls of his mother attempt to comfort her, reminding her that, well, you know, the battle takes a while. You've got to kill all the male warriors first. And then you've got to, like, take an inventory and steal everything these people own. And then the most vile part of it was where it mentions a womb or two for every man. Well, then you got to rape all the virgins and all the women who no longer have husbands around. That takes a little while. Nobody feels sorry for Sisera, do they? After that description, nobody feels sorry for Sisera. Nobody feels sorry for Satan. And friends, if you wind up spending an eternity in hell on Judgment Day... Nobody will feel sorry for you either. Verse 31 closes out the song imploring that God make all his enemies suffer the same fate as Sisera. In the New Testament, we would say, make them suffer the same fate as Satan. And they will. And they will. But they don't have to. They don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to. You can be delivered by this death blow of Jesus to the cranium of Satan the same way Israel was delivered from the dominion of Sisera through the blow of Jael. But friends, if you choose to reject Jesus Christ, I say this, and I know it doesn't sound very gracious, I say it in grace to try and awaken you from your slumber. Nobody will feel sorry for you on judgment day. Friends, God is showing mercy to you. You are here today. Underneath the sound of my voice, you have heard the gospel sung, explained through Chris, explained here as we have stood and preached the gospel to you. God is showing mercy to your soul if you are not in Christ. You don't have to perish. And if you choose to reject Jesus, though, nobody will feel sorry for you. Listen, does anybody feel sorry for Sisera, for Satan? How about Judas? Anybody here feel sorry for Judas? What about Ted Bundy? Anybody feel sorry for him? Hitler, Bin Laden. I know you don't like to think of yourself in the same category as these people, but apart from Christ, you are. Why would you be the exception? This is where I'll end. Turn from sin and trust Christ. Satan's reign was perishing and he perished with it. 
excuse me, Sisera's reign was perishing and he perished with it via the punishment of God. Satan's reign is perishing and he will perish with it via the punishment of God. There is no reason for you to perish with them and suffer the same fate as them. John 3, verses 16 through 19 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light Christ has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Friends, you don't have to perish in eternal punishment. There is a defender for your defenseless soul. There is a warrior for your worthless soul. But you need to understand this. There is a punisher for your perishing soul as well. Friends, come to Jesus and do it now before it's too late for all of eternity. So as I close, as we get ready to play a little video to kind of close this out, as I imagine, as I imagine heaven and, and hopefully supported by scriptures, as I imagine heaven, I don't think there's a single imaginative thought I've ever had of heaven that doesn't involve music. I think, I think there's music 24-7, I don't, infinity. I guess I can't say 365 for all of eternity. There's always music being made in heaven. There's no music in hell. And if there was, it couldn't be heard over the screams of agony and torment of those who perished when they didn't have to because they rejected Jesus Christ. Friends, I'm begging you, don't perish. Don't perish. Come to Christ. Come to Christ and do it today.